And I want to invite the rest of you to open your Bibles. Uh, we're, we're still in Hebrews chapter 11 doing this series on what it looks like to live by faith. And we, we, hear, we hear that language, by faith, by faith, by faith, like 19 times, I think, in this chapter. So we're, we're, we're learning from our fathers and mothers in the faith. Uh, we just you know, sang about uh, one of them, Abraham, like here's the fire in the wood, where's the sacrifice? And you know, God was testing his faith. By faith, you know, he was willing to offer up Isaac, which sounds unspeakable to us. And, and Taylor did a super job last week of just unpacking that. I'm grateful uh, to, to have him filling in while the dailies were celebrating and getting our oldest daughter uh, and, and her husband, Kyle. Uh, we celebrated their wedding. Um, so anyway, it was a great weekend. Thank you for, um, for, for letting us get away and doing that. But um, as we look at this sacrifice um, that Abraham was willing to make, we know that God God made that sacrifice ultimately when, when he offered up Jesus. Uh, and Jesus, for his love for us, laid down his life for us so that we can know him. And, and that's what we're looking at this, this morning is more about the, the, the wealth and the joy and the treasure of knowing him, of being in his presence and letting, letting that be the riches uh, that we look forward to in heaven. So um, we're going to look at verses 22 through 27 in Hebrews 11. If you found your place there, let's stand in honor of God's Word. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Lord, we, we pray that would be true for us today, that, that you would help us to see what is invisible. Uh, give us faith to, to see Jesus and, and his wealth and the pleasure that we have uh, in knowing and being known by him. In his name we pray, amen. Please be seated. All right, so we want to um, look at these, these patriarchs uh, and the promises that they were believing in. We, we want to look at what the, the greater wealth is that the gospel promised to them and, and, and it promises to us. And then we'll just sort of do the whole so what question, which really has to do with, well, well, great, we know these things now about these patriarchs, about Joseph and Moses and so on, but, but, but how is God at work in our lives and, and what changes might, uh, might he make in and through us, right? So what is our faith? If we are living by faith, how does that affect our fear? Because uh, that's mentioned a couple of times here as well. Um, Let's jump in and talk about the patriarchs and the promises. So, so we're looking at Moses for starters, and um, and I'm sorry, at Joseph for starters, because uh, really that's where uh, Exodus picks up uh, is is right at the end of Genesis. 
we have this account of Joseph. And Joseph tells his brothers, uh, look, I'm going to die, and, and I, we don't know how many generations before the Lord fulfills his promise, but we believe that he's going to fulfill his promise to take us out of Egypt, literally out of Africa. That's where, the, that's where Genesis ends. It doesn't end in Israel. It doesn't end with the people of God in, the, in you know, this promised area. They're, they're, they're in Africa. Uh, and, and this is where Joseph is, and he wants his brothers to take his bones with them. It says so in Genesis 50. He tells his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my, my bones from here. Um, this is Joseph's unique way of, of doing what we've already seen, you know, Abraham and Sarah and Noah and, um, you know, Isaac and Jacob and the other patriarchs demonstrate that this world is not their home. Uh, and, and that's what Hebrews 11 continues to show us. And so um, think, think about this statement on behalf of Joseph in Egypt. Talking about his burial, what do we know about the Egyptians? They made a huge fuss about the, 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 the monarchs, the, the pharaohs, uh, and their burials. Um, you know, we don't have time to go into all of Joseph's story, but I'm assuming, you know, most of us are, are sort of up to speed. But look, if you're new to the Bible, new to the church, we're glad you're here. Uh, you can read about Joseph in Genesis, in the first book of the Bible. Uh, and what, what we do know, like whether you've got a biblical background or not, is that we, we all are familiar with the, the pyramids. We're all familiar with sort of the uh, King Tut and all of the, the elaborate um, ways that, that the people of Egypt, ancient Egyptians, would, would go to these great extents to honor their rulers. And Joseph was the second in command in Egypt. Second in command under Pharaoh. Uh, he had this incredible career, um, this incredible rise to prominence, and every single person in Egypt knew who Joseph was. They knew his name, they would have known his face, and, and, and not that I'm saying that they would have built a pyramid in Joseph's honor, but, but the fact that Joseph is saying, I don't want that kind of honor, I don't want that kind of legacy in this superpower nation of the ancient Near East, like he's, he's giving all that up in order to say, my home is elsewhere. My, my home is not tied, you know, to, to what the world considers rich uh, and, and powerful and, um, and, and worthwhile. Uh, instead, he's saying, no, I want you to take my bones from this place where, you know, we know that they made a big deal out of burying their kings, I want you to take my, my remains out of this land because this isn't where I belong. I belong, you know, where God's promised them. So how did Joseph know that Israel would one day leave Egypt, leave Africa? He was trusting in God's plan to bring his people to the place that they'd promised. So earlier in verse 16 of chapter 11, right, in Hebrews, we were looking at this a couple of weeks ago. As it is, uh, Joseph and Abraham and Isaac and Sarah and Jacob were all desiring a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. 
God's not ashamed to be with us. He's not tolerating us. He's not putting up with us. It's not some cosmic eye roll for us to be with him. In fact, he has gone to make sure that we can be with them even when we weren't asking for that. And this is this promise that Joseph ultimately was looking toward. Let's switch over to Moses, right? So we're just kind of walking through this whole you know, hall of fame of faith in, in Hebrews 11, and we, and we get to Moses. And I just want to ask you a quick pop quiz question. What's the first image that pops into your mind when I just say the name Moses? What comes to your mind? Moses. Some, some of you are going, oh yeah, Charlton Heston, Ten Commandments, you know, right? Or, and if you're too old for that, you're still probably thinking of some old guy in a beard and a robe and, you know, staff, right? What if, what if this was the first thing that, that popped into your mind? Baby Moses. We don't think of baby Moses, right? But, but look at, look at what, what Hebrews is pointing out to us. Verse 23, by faith Moses, well, not so much Moses, actually. Moses' parents, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. They were trusting in God's promises. They have this, this beautiful baby in front of them. And, and, and really what we're learning about is not Moses' faith, but his parents' faith. And isn't it kind of interesting? Isn't it kind of, kind of encouraging that, that we, we're not told their names? Oh, I'll give you $5 to anybody who can tell me Moses' parents' names. All right, I'll give you five bucks at the end. Well done. Jochebed and Amram. So, so we learn about them actually in Exodus 6. But Exodus begins, you know, remember, they're still in Egypt. They're still in Africa. And there's this new king that comes over Egypt. He didn't know Joseph. And that's tragic, right? He doesn't know this, this person who saved Egypt from starvation, saved thousands, if not millions of people from starvation. Uh, and then he furthermore feels threatened by how fast the Israelite population is growing. He wants the babies to be thrown into the Nile River. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded. They didn't participate in this genocide, and they let the male children live. And now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. And the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. You know, fine, beautiful baby, and they're trusting in God's promises. No, you know, I have a, pro I have a legacy for you. I, I have a future for your people, and it's not here. So they took this big step of faith, right? The midwives did. Um, uh, Amram and Jacobi did, and, and they, by faith, kept Moses alive. Um, and you know the rest of the story. Uh, but I do think it's encouraging to us that these are sort of anonymous members of this hall of fame of faith. Like, like you got to do some real digging in the, in the genealogies of Exodus 6 to learn who Jacobi and Amram are. But this could be any one of us. This could be any saint who, who by faith is holding on to God's promises, not considering this world our home, but looking forward to the next world, and, and we're, living by the, we're called to live by the same faith that, that these, these men and women do too. These, these saints 
have the same faith that we have. Um, and then you get to Moses himself, adult Moses now, not Gerber baby Moses, who when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, uh, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy uh, the fleeting pleasures of sin, right? And he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. And I mean, come on, that's a lot of treasure. Gold coffins, etc. For he was looking to the reward. And by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. So Hebrews is, is lifting up Moses, um, saying he wasn't going to be content to just live a, a, a comfortable, uh, really nice, uh, pleasurable life uh, in, in Pharaoh's court. Instead, he chose to be mistreated with the Israelites uh, rather than uh, indulge the fleeting pleasures of sin. He was looking forward uh, to the wealth that Christ offered him instead of the treasures of Egypt as his reward. And he did this as enduring as seeing him who is invisible. Now, this is a point where I, I want to let you know, like when I'm reading the Bible, I, I'm, I'm trying to ask myself questions like, well, why is this? And what's going on with here? I'm, I'm trying to be... Um, trying to be honest about what the, what the text is saying, uh, rather than just, oh, well, okay, that's, I guess, what it says. And so you just sort of don't think critically about what the Holy Spirit is, is saying, especially as I'm putting a sermon together. And so I'm trying to anticipate your questions. I'm bringing my questions, and, and hopefully we're looking at this passage and going, and, and trying to be honest about what is this saying to us? What is God communicating to his people and where does this rub us and our you know, assumptions or our own default ways of thinking, where, where does it correct those? Where is it shaping and, and changing us? And so, so this is a great place to do that. And here's what I want to point out. Like this text is saying that by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. And it sort of lifts up Moses, boy, good for him, living by faith in what's invisible, Right? But look at Moses' life and the things that he did based on what certainly sound like very, very visible, very concrete and tangible ways that, that God appeared to him, right? I mean, the burning bush. That wasn't invisible. I mean, God's appearing to Moses in this bush that's, cons that's burning but it's not being consumed, and he hears this voice, and that, I mean, that sounds pretty concrete. Uh, and then tells him to go, uh, literally, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So he gets this promise from a bush. <laughs> and, and then he goes to Pharaoh, and there's all these other signs and wonders, right? The, the, the plagues. I mean, that's visible stuff that's going on. Incontrovertible. So much so that Pharaoh eventually caves and says, all right, get out of here. Um, and and then, then what happens? The pillar of fire, pillar of cloud, 
this demonstrable evidence of God's presence that everybody can see. And then they have this deliverance at the Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea, which you know, throughout the rest of the Old Testament, they keep looking back on as this pivotal, you know, um, de- demonstrable, definitive moment of, of God saving his people. And you want to tell me those things are invisible? They're not invisible. We look at those and go, man, that's. I wish I had some signs like that. Here we are lifting up Moses by faith, but it seems like God gave him an awful lot of evidence. Where's my evidence? Did you ever pray like that? You know, you're just looking for some kind of guidance, some kind of reassurance, you know, God feels far away and you, you need a sign, you need something, right? I mean, I've felt that. Have you felt that? Uh, some of you have been around Tabernacle long enough to know exactly where I'm going with this. And if you're new to Tabernacle, I hope you never forget this. What's the evidence that God's given to us that he's with us? What's the evidence that God's given to us that gives us the power to live by faith in his promises? How has God made himself visible to us? He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for in him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I I get it that it would be wonderful, right, to, to pray and to ask God for some kind of reassurance or direction, and then poof, you know, that, that, that thing, that concrete answer appears immediately. I, I get it. That would be awesome. But at the same time, what I want to reassure us of, what I, what I want to comfort all of us with is this, is this gospel truth that, that we actually have more visible evidence than Moses did. We have a person. We have Jesus himself. And I know our eyes did not see him firsthand, but our great, 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 great fathers and mothers did. And the evidence is incontrovertible. He's a historical figure. His life, death, burial, and resurrection were attested to by hundreds and thousands of people. His life has transformed the world. It's, it's, the, the, the argument is not, well, did he exist or did he you know, was he crucified or was he resurrected or not? Like, that's really been proven, genuinely. The question is, what are you going to do with the evidence? What will we do with the person of Jesus? And if we're saying, you know, he hasn't revealed himself to me, he hasn't given me enough evidence to believe, I can't live by faith, I can't trust him, or I'm having a hard time trusting him because I don't have enough answers to prayer, we ought never to look any farther than Jesus. I, I understand that there's lots of people who want to provide comfort and then want to say, well, consider this, consider that. What about this prophecy and so on? Like, 
This can all be ancillary, but what's central is the image of the invisible God, Jesus, our Emmanuel, who tabernacled among us. His cross is the evidence, too, that God is not just putting up with us like we said, but he really has prepared a place for us. He's prepared a way for our sins to be forgiven so that we can enter his righteous and holy and pure and good and perfect and beautiful presence and not screw the whole thing up, not pollute it. But we come in purified. We come in clean. We come in forgiven. And the, and the cross is the evidence of that. So by faith, right? Why? How, how do we, what do we trust in? We're trusting in the gospel. We're trusting in the person of Jesus who himself is trustworthy. And this leads us to, to greater wealth than, um, than anything that this world can offer. Like, like so Moses um, doesn't consider the riches of Egypt uh, anything in comparison to what the promises that God's offering him. And, you know, we, we see that, right? You, you look at even today, uh, all the, for as, as glorious a superpower as Egypt once was and, and as much, you know, wealth and, and, um, and you know, prominences that nation had. Now today, it's just a, a place that archaeologists go and they try to look for old dead bones and where the robbers have gone and, and you know, have dug out all the gold from those pyramids. And those pyramids, you know, yeah, we, we have this mental image, but once upon a time, they were beautiful, sleek, white, you know, in the desert and all of that's just been sandblasted and they're just ruins now. And Moses' economy was right. Egypt had dust to offer him in comparison to heaven's promises. Um, just to bring this into our world here for a second, uh, Wall Street Journal did a, a little article this past week talking about um, our nation's wealth. Like, where, where are we at as a country? Where... Where am I at? Where, where are you at? And, and here, here's what the Federal Reserve is telling us about the um, household wealth in the United States. Okay, don't miss this. The Federal Reserve revealed that last year in 2022, the average net worth of American households, American families, topped what amount do you think? A million dollars. The average net worth of American families topped a million bucks. And every, all of you are going, yeah, that, that sounds about right. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's me. Sure. They, they have this little asterisk. Though that figure is skewed by a small number of multimillionaires and billionaires. Like, okay. So we're not talking about uh, the, the, the median. We're talking about the mean, the average of every household. Now, in fairness, though, what is the actual number of U.S. households or families that are worth a million or more? What, what, what percentage would you say of, of U.S. households? It's actually 12%. 16 million. American families are, have a net worth of a million dollars or more. Uh, and 12%, that sounds like a lot, right? Arguably, that's some of, some of these households, some of you, are worth over a million bucks. I know you don't feel it, though, right? Nobody feels like they have enough. 
Even the millionaires, even the multimillionaires, even the billionaires. You, know, you ask Andrew Carnegie, how much is enough? Well, just a million more or whatever. No one ever feels like it's enough. Everybody always worries, well, am I going to have enough? And, and you can be rich or poor, and, and we all feel the same thing. We all want more. We're all worried that we don't have enough. And you contrast this way of thinking, the way the world kind of does wealth, with what the Bible says is real wealth, and you come across places like this in Isaiah 55 where the prophet is saying, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. And then, you know, the corollary is, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy. Why are we spinning our wheels running after the world's wealth when God is offering us these riches and wealth in heaven with him? This is the lasting treasure that we can have with Jesus. It will never fade. Um, you know, some of you are aware that uh, we were in Italy with the Kilmers for uh, the wedding a couple weeks ago, and, and Kathy and I got to do a day trip uh, while we were there. We, we drove into Assisi, and you, you may know Assisi because that's where Francis, uh, St. Francis of Assisi, uh, that's where he grew up, and he, and he walked those streets in the, in, in the 13th century. Um, he was a really, really, came from a prominent, wealthy, uh, silk-dealing uh, family, and his father was was a big businessman, and so so Francis was very privileged, very wealthy, um, apparently very handsome, kind of a ladies' guy. Um, and, and then God got a hold of his heart, and he, he felt God's call. Uh, and in the middle of, uh, of Assisi, and you could stand in the place where it's reportedly happened, he, he forsook his, his title, he forsook all of his wealth, he took a vow of poverty, of obedience, and of chastity, and then a bunch of other guys started following him too as friars, and they became the Franciscan order. Why do, why do people take a vow of poverty? What's going on with that? You know, I mean, you have to ask somebody who takes that vow for, for, for their particular reasons, but maybe why would Francis, why would the Franciscans make poverty one of their vows? They might have gotten some inspiration from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal, right? Think of, again, Moses or, or Joseph, rather. I'm not going to be buried in Egypt. I know that those pyramids, as impressive as they may be and as impressive as those gilded coffins may be, they're just going to ultimately be the, the stuff for robbers and just going to be sandblasted ruins. Like, they get that. But Francis, I, I think, I don't know, only the Lord knows anybody's heart, but Francis and his friars, I, don't, I think it's wrong to think of them as just foregoing wealth. Like just poverty for poverty's sake, as if there's something noble and, and, and holier about poverty instead of like having an income, etc. What, what's really going on is they're looking for true riches, right? Jesus directs us to lay up our treasures in heaven, to, in a sense, pile it on in heaven, and, and, and not to get confused and think that 
we're supposed to be piling it up here. This is just, we're all going to leave it behind. But Jesus is, un, is unapologetic. Um, the Bible doesn't tell us to forego riches. It just says, put them in their proper context. Pile them up in heaven. Don't forego pleasure, but instead make sure your pleasure is, is heavenly rather than earthly. And so what's interesting is places like Psalm 16, where it says, you've made known to me the path of life, and in your presence there's fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures evermore. So you know, John Piper is one who famously you know, pointed this out. And I remember like in the, in the 1990s reading Desiring God, and, and, and he's talking about this concept called Christian hedonism. Like, wait a minute, you're not supposed to, to put those two words together. A hedonist is a person who's living for pleasure, and then you've got a Christian, and, and somehow we get this idea that a Christian's not supposed to live for pleasure. A Christian's supposed to be just a serious, you know, sober-minded, almost sort of, you know, the, the, the more dour you are, the holier you are. And, and that couldn't be further from the truth. Jesus was not a sourpuss. Jesus did not go around making people unhappy and depressed. People wanted to be with Jesus, and he was at the center of their joy, and he was at the center of their celebration, and he had a lot to say about the nature of true joy, of course. But don't ever get the impression that in order to be a serious Christian, you've got to be seriously unhappy. And, and this is, you know, Piper made famous a, a quote by um, C.S. Lewis in his sermon, The Weight of Glory, and probably you've heard this quote, but some of you haven't, so just bear with me if it's redundant. But Lewis points out, 1940s, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak, right? So C.S. Lewis is saying, the problem with Christianity isn't that we're, we're longing too much for pleasure. We don't long for it enough. Our desires are too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We're like an ignorant child, you know, who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of the holiday at the sea. We're we're far too easily pleased. We settle for what the world offers us instead of grasping and piling up the, the pleasure that God gives us in heaven. That Jesus is this joy that will last forever. He's the treasure that will make us eternally wealthy. And he provides this treasure at the expense of his own own self, at the expense of the cross, of taking on our spiritual bankruptcy in order to give us his wealth, his riches of righteousness. And, you know, he gives us this inheritance with him, and he takes our guilt, our guilt and our sin away uh, as we trust in him. That's all, that, that's all that, you know, is required to belong to Jesus, to trust in him, is to believe that, yeah, he's taking my guilt, my sin, my poverty, and instead he's giving me his righteousness, his riches, his wealth. And it's his great desire to do this for us, right? There's never, ever been a love like this, and there never, ever will be one like it to, to, to compete with it. So there's no greater joy or wealth than to spend eternity with that kind of person 
who can love us so completely and at such an exorbitant expense and still count it joy to know us, to be with us, to prepare a place for us, to be eager to be with us. And, and that's where the, the, the joy of, of heaven lies. So don't settle, right? We shouldn't settle for the fleeting stuff that this world offers us when Jesus is the one who satisfies us forever. And we're, we're looking at earthly riches instead of having Jesus who makes us the richest people on this planet. So John Piper puts it this way, you know, as he was quoting Lewis, he, he goes on and he says in his own words, the pursuit of joy in God is not optional. These people living by faith in Hebrews, this is an optional faith. It's, it's required. They're looking forward to these eternal pleasures. And it's not an extra that a person might grow into after he comes to faith. It is not simply a way to enhance your walk with the Lord. Until your heart has hit upon this pursuit, your faith, you know, such as it is in quotes, isn't what pleases God. It's not saving faith. Saving faith is the heartfelt conviction, not only that Christ is reliable, but also that he's desirable. Like He has to become the object of our faith. He's the desire that we have. He's the riches. He's the pleasure, not the means to them. Right? He's the object of our faith. He is the one who's desirable, and it is this confidence that he will come through with his promises and that, and that what he promises is more to be desired than all the world. That's, that's really Hebrews 11 in a nutshell. When we get this, when we start like living by faith sim- similar to not just Joseph and Moses, but to Amram and Jochebed, you know, these, these even anonymous, so to speak, figures. When we start living like this, changes happen in our lives. And, and our faith, which is so far-reaching and so fundamental to everything that we do, it starts to shape us and change us. Like, like we all live by faith. Every single person, whether they're Christian or not, you know, no matter what religion, everybody's got a faith construct. And we do this in all kinds of ways. Like our money is based on faith. Um, since we're talking about wealth, let's talk about money. Your money is based on faith. You go to buy a Slurpee, you're doing that by faith. You hand over that legal tender piece of paper and that cashier says, thank you very much and here's your Slurpee. And this is an exchange based on faith. The faith is, is that that piece of paper is worth something. It's actually based on our government saying that is legal tender for an exchange of sale in our country. And that's all. And what happens sometimes though is in some countries where they've got their own money, people lose faith in the government They stop believing that the government can fulfill its promises and then the money becomes worthless. And people don't buy that exchange anymore. But it's all based on faith, on the trust and a belief that, okay, I'm giving you this money and you're giving me something of reciprocal value. What about your commute to work? It's based on faith. How do you know if you leave at the same time, you're always going to get to work on time? What about, what if there's an accident? What if there's some some kind of traffic jam you didn't anticipate? But by faith, you were thinking, if I leave now, I'll get there on time. And how about your commute takes you on some of those back roads where it's just two, you know, two lanes and there's your traffic going this way and the other traffic coming that way and that truck's coming at you? By faith, you're trusting that other driver is paying attention to you. And by faith, we're trusting that I'm not going to be the accident that provides the traffic for everybody else who thought they were going to get to work on time. 
Um, you know, growing up uh, and sharing a bedroom with your brother or sister was an act of faith, right? How did you know that you were going to wake up and not have your hand in a bowl of warm water? You remember that prank? Or your face covered with shaving cream? Like, we live by faith. Everything's by faith. Education's by faith. You know, we, we, we tell our kids, go to high school, you know, get, work hard in high school, go to Go, go to college, go to a good college, you know, you can go get a good job or you can go on to, you know, get a master's or even a doctorate. And then, you know, all this, all these assumptions, all this stuff by faith in order to get what? You know, do you know that how many people with master's degrees and doctorates today can't even afford to buy a house? These are all these faith assumptions. I'm not trying to be pessimistic. I'm just, I'm just trying to make this observation. We live by faith regardless why not live by faith in something that is substantial and eternal and has real wealth and offers us real pleasure and will bring real change to our lives? We're told a couple of times here in this passage that, you know, okay, Moses' parents, they were not afraid of the king's edict. The midwives... We're not afraid of Pharaoh's, you know, edict. Moses himself not being afraid of the anger of the king, right? These people are, are living by faith, and, and that's a contrast to the way that the rest of the world lives by fear of judgment. The anger of the king, what, what can this person do to me? What consequences for my poor behavior or what I'm going to do or not do? And we're always living under that threat. People are constantly living under the fear of judgment. We're afraid of what our spouse thinks if they get angry with us. We're afraid of, of what our coworkers are going to think if they get angry with us. We're afraid of what our, our coach or, or our teachers are going to think if they get angry with us. We're always doing this algorithm of how do I please people? How do I get their approval? How do I maintain my acceptance in this group? How do I not make everybody mad so they reject me? Rosemarie Miller, in her book From Fear to Freedom, writes that one of the reasons we come to feel guilty is that we move away from the cross and a desire to please God and live instead for the approval of others. Families have rules, our culture has rules. And the church often has hidden agendas. Our society encourages us to be successful, but if we live by a success-failure model rather than under the authority of Christ, we wound our consciences. And the gospel takes this fear of judgment away. It gives us God's approval and good standing in heaven's eyes, and we don't have to worry about what our standing is in the eyes of others. You know what this does to our fear? It minimizes it. You know what this does to our faith? It grows it. It can make us bold enough to, to love people instead of being afraid of them. So the next time somebody's angry at you, right? Like, we have to believe the gospel. We have to live by faith that my approval, my acceptance is not determined on what this person thinks. I have the approval and acceptance of heaven, and maybe because of that, I can have some courage to face this person, to not run away from this person, 
to engage this person, to be curious about what's really making them upset. If it's something I've done, I can have the courage to even apologize. Or maybe what they're upset about, even though it's being directed at me, is something else, and I can, I can help bring healing by hanging in there. But you have to have faith to do that. What about the opposite side of that? What if you're the angry person? Moses' parents weren't afraid of the king. Moses wasn't afraid of the king. The midwives weren't afraid of the king. You're, you're a king. You're an authority to somebody. I don't, I don't know who. Somebody in your life, you're an authority. Are they afraid of you? Are they afraid of your anger? How, how do we want to come across? Do, is it our goal to just win do we have to win all the time, or can we come across not as an angry king, but instead as just a forgiven saint? Doesn't mean that we don't engage in hard conversations. Doesn't mean that we don't address the disagreements. Doesn't mean that we don't have to iron things out. Yeah, I get it. But if there's people in your life who are afraid of you and you're the angry king, are you living by faith? It's all easier said than done. Um, and I want to let you know I failed at this yesterday. But our failures don't make the promises of God any less true. Right? His judgments removed from us were accepted in heaven. He accepts us into his joyful presence where there are eternal pleasures at his right hand. And with these kinds of riches, why are we so afraid? Why are we so angry? Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for the gospel. Uh, thank you for the truth of Jesus. Uh, thank you for his historical reality. Thank you for the, the visible evidence that he is to us um, and his cross proving that your wrath is satisfied, that we are forgiven and accepted in heaven's eyes, that we're approved and that we have, we have eternal pleasures and we have forever riches at your right hand. Lord, would you please fix our eyes on these things, your presence, your joy, uh, your acceptance. And Lord, would you help us to live by faith in these things so that we can be uh, clearer pictures of how you relate to us and to others and that we can live by faith even in the face of anger. And we pray this in Jesus' name.